Well, if you would take your Bibles and turn to Hebrews chapter 6. Hebrews chapter 6 and verses 1 through 3 will be our text for this morning. This section of verses is moving into one of the warning passages of Hebrew and one of the most severe warning passages in all of Scripture. And it's tied to the verses preceding it where we are told that we need to move on, or the church was told, the Hebrews were told that they need to move on from milk. And they needed to go into solid food. This was a group of people that had been raised in the Jewish Scriptures. They came to know Christ. They came to profess Christ. But as things became difficult in life, they realized life was not going the way they had expected. Maybe it was not going as expected as Christians as they thought it should go. And so they're looking at going back. They're looking at turning back to their previous way of life in Judaism. And so this letter is written to show how Christ is superior, how Christ is greater, how Christ is preeminent. And to not go back, to not look back to the old ways. And actually that we are to be moving on. And so what the text tells us this morning is first that tells us that we need to build on the fundamental doctrines. Then we're told what the fundamental doctrines are. And then finally we're told how we move on from the fundamental doctrines. So let us hear the word of the Lord. Therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God and of instruction about washings, the laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgment. And this we will do if God permits. This is the reading of the word, and may the Lord bless his reading. We're told first that we must move on. We're told that we have to grow in our faith. And you see that this is connected to the verses prior to it with the word, therefore, where he had told them that they were in need of milk, that they couldn't digest solid food. But what's interesting is, about this is where he says, you're not ready for solid food. You still need milk. He doesn't give them milk. He tells them it's time to actually move on. That's interesting. Because if you tell someone you're not ready for solid food, you think you would not then give them solid food. But that's exactly what he says they need, is they need to move on from these things. That they don't need more milk, but rather they need to move into some steak. And that's what he says here. Let us leave the elementary doctrine. Let us move beyond where we are. You see in chapter 5, verse 11 where he says you've become dull of hearing. He's speaking of the message that they had heard, the doctrines of Christ that they had understood. So if you think of it this way, in what they need to move on from and what they're moving on to, is they're moving on from the basics of Christianity in terms of doctrine. 
What is our basic understanding of the faith? But it's not only the basic understanding of the faith, it's how one lives in light of the basics of the faith. You see this in verse 13 of chapter 5, where he speaks of, for everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness since he is a child. And so in other words, it's not just merely what we know of doctrine, but how that doctrine transcends into how we live our life, the word of righteousness and how it's manifested in our life. You have to move beyond the basics, in other words, we're called to. And so he says first, let us leave these things. That can be confusing. Let us leave the elementary teachings. Does that mean that we just no longer embrace them and we no longer cling to them? That's not what he's saying, is that we leave the basic teachings as if they're no longer foundational. It's just simply this, is that we no longer are building a foundation. The elementary teaching is the foundation upon which we build everything else. You think of it like this in music. The most basic thing you can learn is a major skill. And a major skill in westernized music is the basis of all other music whether it's jazz or country or whatever we're listening to, it's all built upon this fundamental basic thing called a major scale. Now, as a music teacher, I no longer have to rehearse what a major scale is. As a musician, I'm not sitting there thinking, what's a major scale? I know what it is. I haven't abandoned the major scale. Everything else I do is based upon that. And that's kind of like what it's like here, is it's not that we're leaving those things anymore. We understand them and we build upon them now. That's the whole point, is we need to move into the more, say, complex ideas. And the second thing he says is after letting us leave these elementary things where we're no longer having to rehearse them, but he goes on to say in the second part of verse 1 is we need to go on to maturity, and to go on, is to move from one place to another. So if we start here, the goal of the Christian life is that we're here. We're moving forward. We're progressing. It's an upward movement that we're constantly growing in the faith. That's what the call is here. So your Christian journey begins with the elementary doctrines of Christ, who Christ is, and the meaning of the gospel. But it must move beyond them. You think about it when you came to confess Christ. If you have confessed Christ as your Lord and Savior, you confess you know something of Christ in that that early stage of your faith. That Jesus came, was sent by the Father, the Son of God, that he would die upon a cross and take my sins upon himself. And then you even confess something of the triune God because you're baptized in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And so you know something of the nature of God, that God is one yet three persons. These are the basic things that we, and when we come to faith, we know that I'm a sinner. And that I'm in need of forgiveness. These are the basics of the faith. But you just don't stop there. That's the foundation. 
Just as Ephesians chapter 2, verse 20, talks about the apostolic foundation of our faith. The teachings of Christ are the basics. And we need to move beyond them. This is a replete command in Scripture. In fact, you think of one of the most famous passages in all of Scripture that's read at almost every single wedding is 1 Corinthians chapter 13. The love chapter. We're all familiar with it, but notice what we find in that chapter. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up my childish ways. This idea of moving on. It's this idea of growing. And the whole reason that we have a foundation is so that we build upon it. Can you imagine laying a foundation for a house, but never building the house. That's where these Hebrews found themselves in that type of situation. The the foundation had been laid, but they didn't start building upon it. He says, you need to move beyond these things. In 1 Corinthians 3.10, it says, According to the grace of God given to me, like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation and someone else is building upon it. Let each one take care how he builds upon it. So the foundation that has been laid, if you are in Christ, he's telling these Hebrews, if you have professed Christ, you got the basics down by way of your profession. Now it's time to move beyond that. So listen, friends, if if you have professed Christ, if you have confessed Christ as Lord this morning, and you have been baptized in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, you have confessed the basics of the faith. You have confessed the elementary doctrines of Christ. And now what we are called to do is that we need to move beyond them. So when we come to receive Christ, we receive the foundation, but the gospel doesn't just stop there. That's why he says we build upon it. Let us build upon it. I want you to notice let us is in the active voice, which means this, is that when we come to Christ, and we profess Christ, this building upon that foundation is for the rest of our lives. It's active in your life. There never comes a point where I wake up in the morning, or you wake up in the morning and say, you know what, I think I've got it all down now. I'm good. I don't need to grow anymore. And if, if you ever come to that point, that's just a sign that you actually need some growing to do there. And we're, we're constantly growing in our knowledge of the word of righteousness. We're constantly growing in our knowledge of God's word. It's a continual part of our life. If you just survey the scriptures, you think about what it says regarding growing. Think of the Apostle Paul. If if the Apostle Paul ever said, you know, I think I've arrived, I've gotten it, he would be one person you would think that maybe could have gotten there, but he didn't. This is how Paul describes his life. He says in Philippians chapter 3, verse 12, Not that I have already obtained this, or am already perfect. And this is speaking of the resurrection of Christ. He says, But I press on to make it my own, because Christ Jesus has made me his own. And when, when Paul talks about and uses that type of language of him pressing on, of him moving on, he's using athletic imagery. I don't know if it's because Paul was a fan of sports or because he was writing to people that were fans of sports, but he always uses this athletic imagery to show exertion. 
to show straining, to show how we prepare ourselves as we move forward. So is the Christian life work and effort? Yes, it is work and effort, and because it's active, it's continual, let us continue doing this, it means it's a continual, active, maturing, straining progressing forward in our faith. You think of what Paul tells Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 4, verses 7-9, through 9, where he says you need to train yourself, you need to toil, you need to strive after godliness. The same thing could be said of us, as this needs to be a constant part of our life of training, of toiling and striving. So many come to the faith, they receive Christ or they profess Christ, and then just... Stay right there. You have to ask, is that a work of the Spirit in their life? Is that a work of obedience into the Word of God? Let me ask you, are you you growing in the faith? Are you growing in your knowledge of the Word of righteousness? Since you've been a Christian, have you grown in your knowledge of God's Word? Have you matured in God's Word? And you think about it this way, is that in Hebrews, the context is not just purely doctrine, as in head knowledge, but it's doctrine that's applied to the Christian life. Doctrine's useless if it's not applied. Doctrine's useless for us if it's not actually changing and transforming us. That's the whole point, is that we would be sanctified to the image of Christ. And so I ask is, has this been working in your life? And here's a good test question. How do you handle temptations today versus a year ago? Examine your life. When you first came to Christ and you're new in the faith and the the flesh is very relevant at that point and never ceases to be relevant, but how do you handle the Christian life now? And I think these are questions that the text is forcing us to deal with. Because it says this, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity, not laying again a foundation. Meaning this, if you're in Christ, the foundation has been laid. And if you have had that foundation laid, you now have to build upon it. This is what he's telling Christians that were suffering, that were persecuting, uh, facing persecution, looking back at the old ways of life. And he said that part of their problem is that they didn't grow. You think about it, this, this is a warning passage against apostasy. What is a great danger of the Christian life? Not growing. Not growing. Now, what is this elementary doctrine? He's going to to give it to us here. First, we have to recognize it's the doctrine of Christ. He's writing to Hebrews. So, in in all likelihood, everything that he's going to list, he's going to give us six points. But each point is is in a couplet. So, there's really three that are related Three points, two couplets each point. The doctrine of Christ, speaking to Hebrews, is probably moving from that Old Testament picture of Christ into 
the new covenant community. And he's going to begin by saying the first point is repentance from dead works and faith toward God. The first message of John the Baptist that's recorded in Scripture was repent. The first message of the Lord Jesus Christ that is recorded in Scripture was repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Repentance is very much part of the Christian message. That, that is one of the first things that we, we hear. And here it's a repentance from dead works. Now, what, what does repentance mean? Repentance just simply means a change of mind, but it is a, a change of the whole person. It is a change of mind in the whole in totality of the person. They have turned from sin in turning to Christ. And in coming to Christ, they have turned from sin. They have changed their mind about who Christ is as Lord and no longer are enslaved to sin. Now we have to see that this couplet here is repentance from dead works and faith toward God. Repentance and faith are not the same thing. They're distinct, but they're two sides of the same coin. You can't have faith without repentance, and you can't have repentance without faith. So they work together, though they are distinct from one another. And we have to see that faith here is towards God, and repentance is from dead works. And so while they are different ideas of faith and repentance, they are inseparable. And you have to know this, and this is crucial, and I think goes against or is counter to much of the Christian message that you hear today, and that is this, faith in Christ necessitates repentance. Faith in Christ necessitates repentance. That the Christian life is a life of repentance. Now, this brings up a tough question. Do I have to do something in coming to Christ? No, you come to Christ. If I had to do something in order to come to Christ, then that would mean that my coming to Christ is dependent upon my works. We don't want to confuse those things. So, do I have to repent in coming to Christ? Well, how much do I have to repent in coming to Christ? No, you come to Christ. You believe upon Christ. You trust in Christ. You lay hold of Christ. But we are told repentance comes with that. We are called to repent. And as you come to Christ, part of that, the other side of the coin, is repentance. It's simultaneous to belief. Again, you can't have faith in Christ apart from a repentant life. Now specifically here, it says repentance from dead works. That's a kind of a confusing phrase. What does it mean? Some people argue that it means from works-based righteousness. That's not what he's referring to. And actually, I think the NIV does a really helpful job in translating it. The NIV translates it this, repentance from acts that lead to death. Repentance from acts that lead to death. So repentance from dead works is this, repenting from sinful actions. Repenting from evil things that we do. In other words, it's repentance from sin, and sin brings what? Death. So it's repentance 
from things that bring about death. And we, we have to recognize that sin brings death. In fact, we see this phrase in Hebrews chapter 9 in verse 13 and 14 where we read this, For if the blood of, bull, of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works? Purify our conscience from sinful actions to serve the living God. So repentance from dead works is simply this. It's repentance from sinful actions. And those sinful actions bring death. We have to recognize that death comes as a result of sin. Wages of sin is death. The wages of sin is death. That is, that's what we deserve. That's what we get. You think about what it was that God promised. If you eat of that tree, you will surely what? Die. What entered into the world because of our first parents? Death. Suffering. Tragedy. Because of sin. Sin brings Death. So the recall is to repent from sin, and we have to recognize sin brings death. This is so important for the Christian life. This is elementary, the Scripture tells us, but yet this is a constant struggle for us. Why? And that is because we have the flesh. And that is because we're still in this human body. We still face temptations. And sin is appealing. And in the moment, sin, as it's appealing to us, we think it will bring us something good. This is why we read in 1 John, where John says, For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires. What is this telling us is that as we live in this world, there are certain desires that we have that are constantly before us, that are bombarding us. As Sinclair Ferguson says, the very air we breathe is toxic. It's constantly before us, and we think that that temptation coming at us will, will maybe give us a little bit of relief, it maybe a little bit of happiness, it will maybe fill our hearts with a little bit of joy or give us some temporary relief, and it, it won't be that bad if we take in the pleasures of temptations, but the Scripture says it will kill you, and it is killing you. This is why John Owen, in his most... Per- probably profound work, mortification of the flesh, says, be killing sin or sin be killing you. It kills us. It's always before us. And the reality is this, is that apart from Christ, it will eternally kill us. Let me give you an example of this, of dead works. A number of years ago, I was with a, a pastor friend and we were evangelizing And this little girl asked a question, if God is good, why is there so much suffering 
in the world. And I, I was so thankful this pastor answered the question. He said, well, because sin came in the world. And he gave this illustration. He said, you imagine a pure river. And in that river, all of the animals inside that river, the fish and whatever other things are there, they're happy, they're healthy, they're, they're not diseased. But all of a sudden, a little pollution comes into that river. And then the pollution just keeps adding and keeps adding. And then all of a sudden, the fish are sick. Not all the fish are sick, but you have a, you have a sick fish every now and then. That's the world we live in. Is we have a, a world now that is rampant with, with death, with war, with disease, with tragedy that comes about. Why? It's because sin entered into this world and sin brings death. Everywhere sin touches, it kills. Doesn't this teach us the seriousness of sin? And our need to repent from dead works. It must never mark the Christian life. But the Christian life ought to be a life that is marked by repentance. And, and, and the text tells us this is elementary. This is the foundational teaching of Scripture. In other words, it, we, we shouldn't be, have to be told that we need to re- repent, but we do, don't we? In fact, what is we look back upon our baptism, our baptism pictures a newness of life. Raised to walk, what? In a newness of life. That presupposes a repentance of the whole person. There's something else that we have to recognize about repentance. Repentance, much like faith, that other side of the coin, is a gift of God. It is a sovereign work of God's grace in our life. We read this in Acts chapter 11, verse 12. When the Gentiles came to faith, they said then to the Gentiles, also God has granted repentance that leads to life. In other words, if you are in Christ, that is a sovereign work of God in your life. Repentance is a sovereign work of God in your life. It is by God's grace. We don't just wake up and say, you know, I think I want to live a holy life. No, you have been made holy. You have been given the righteousness of Christ. And this is a work of God in your life that is moving us. It's a grace of God. So in other words, if you have experienced faith in Christ, you have experienced repentance in your life. But if repentance is lacking, but we say, I have faith in God then we're actually claiming something that the Scriptures do not claim. We're claiming something foreign to the Scriptures. So one of the elementary teachings, one of the foundational teachings is that of repentance from dead works, but the other part of that is this, is faith toward God. That is trusting in Christ. That is believing upon Christ. The Christian life is not just emotion or words of saying, I I believe in Christ, but but faith is active. Faith is alive. As it was said by the Reformers, faith is is knowledge. We, We believe something. It's assenting to that knowledge that it is true. And then it moves beyond that to trust. That's faith. It's knowledge, assent, and trust. Those are all the elements that we know what we believe in. We truly trust in it. And then we 
live in light of that. It is a life lived following Jesus. Very simply, faith is where Jesus says, Abide in me and I will abide in you. Faith is following after Christ and laying your life down before him. Faith is that active following of Christ. It's nothing that we bring in terms of a work. It's the empty hand of faith that we have nothing to contribute, but we trust in Christ alone. That is faith. Now the second set of basic instructions, I think more ink has been spilt over these two little phrases here than any other place in in Hebrews, perhaps, and that is instruction about washings and laying on of hands. And I found it ironic and almost humorous this last week as I'm sitting at my desk, and I believe it's Paul that wrote the book of Hebrews, and Paul is telling them, let's move past these elementary teachings here, and he says, instructions of washing and the laying on of hands. And so Paul's saying that that's basic, but there's no commentator that agrees on what exactly that means. I think this is one of those places like where Peter says, sometimes Paul's writings are hard to understand. And this is perhaps one of those. So instructions about washings, what does that mean? Well, he's writing to Hebrews. And a vital part of the Jewish life, an aspect of a Jewish life, was cleansing. It was a very important part of their life. Before they did anything, there was cleansing involved. And so likely what it is is how it was different from baptism. That's probably the meaning here is how cleansing was different from how Christian baptism is. How in Christ we are made clean. That we don't clean ourselves. And so does, does baptism literally clean us or wash away our sins? No. Only the blood of Christ Only the blood of Christ cleanses us, applied by the Spirit. But our Christian baptism visibly pictures what Christ has done to us. It pictures that cleansing that has been brought about by the Spirit. The second of this is the laying on of hands. Again, this is something that's rich in in the Old Testament, but it's also rich in the New Testament. Just survey how many times you find laying on of hands in the New Testament. In Matthew chapter 19, verse 13, children are brought to Jesus for Him to lay His hands on them and to bless them. You see it with healing in Mark chapter 7, verse 32. In the commissioning or the the setting aside the deacons in in Acts chapter 6, or we could just say the leadership in Acts chapter 6 was accompanied by laying on of hands. The commissioning of missionaries in Acts chapter 13, when Paul and Barnabas are sent out, the church of Antioch places their hands upon them. In ordination, we see that there's a laying on of hands. You also see what's accompanied is this, is that there's a giving of the Spirit and laying on of hands after baptism. You see that in Acts in a couple of different places. But there's something else about this, is that laying on of hands in the Old Testament actually was a very wonderful picture of atonement. In Acts chapter, or excuse me, Leviticus chapter 16, in verse 21 We read these instructions on the Day of Atonement. And Aaron shall lay both his hands on the head of the live goat and confess over it all the iniquities of the people of Israel. 
and all their transgressions, all their sins, and he shall put them on the head of the goat and send it away into the wilderness by the hand of a man who is in readiness. The goat shall bear all their iniquities on itself to a remote area, and he shall let the goat go free in wilderness. Perhaps the laying on of hands is more than just something we do in ordination as a symbolic thing, but perhaps it's a picture of the laying on of our guilt and our sins upon the cross and Christ taking them for us. That's a very elementary part of our faith is that our sins have been placed upon Christ and Christ as the scapegoat has taken them from us. But these are the basic things that they are to be know, know of. And then finally, we see this. The, the third couplet is this, the resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment. This was the basics of, of teaching, the resurrection of the dead. That's essential to preaching. Paul goes, wherever he goes, I knew Christ crucified. And that alone. Now, when you see that idea of Christ crucified, that assumes the resurrection. In the very book that Paul writes that in 1 Corinthians, he ends with chapter 15 that says, if we're not teaching of the resurrection, if we don't hold to the resurrection, if we don't believe in the resurrection, we of all people are the most to be pitied. Because if there's not a resurrection of the dead, we can all go home and watch the game. We don't need to be here if there's no resurrection. But if there is a resurrection of the dead... That changes everything. That changes everything about our life. What is it specifically, the resurrection of the dead? There is coming a day where the dead will be raised and their bodies reunited with their soul. So if you should die before that day, your soul goes to heaven or to hell. This is why Paul says, absent from the body is to be present with Christ. So our bodies go to the ground. When we die, we don't, we don't right now, at this point, we, we don't, our bodies, they go to the ground. Our soul goes and awaits the glorious return of our, of our bodies to be reunited with a glorious body like Christ. This is why Paul says, my desire is to depart and be with Christ. But at the resurrection, our bodies then are united and we're given that glorified body. And this is the Christian hope. In fact, Paul writes of this very hope in Philippians chapter 3 where he says in verse 20, but our citizenship is in heaven and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like His glorious body by the power that enables Him to even subject all things to Himself. That is the great Christian hope. Now you think of the context of the book of Hebrews. They're Christians that are struggling. They're Christians that are suffering. They might even be facing persecution bodily, physical persecution. We don't know. But as they're looking at facing that, what is the basic elementary teaching that would bring them hope? Is this body is not my own. 
but I await a glorious new one. There's an existence beyond this, and I will be given an indestructible life. That's the great hope, that there will be a resurrection of the dead one day. But when that day comes, we also see that it's tied to that as eternal judgment. There is an eternal judgment coming. There is a coming day when Christ will judge all peoples, where their hearts and all people's hearts will be laid bare before His all-seeing eye, and He will execute a perfect judgment, and it will be final, hence the word eternal. We have to let the weight of that sit for a second. Judgment's coming, and it's an eternal judgment. It's a decisive judgment. It's a just judgment. And this day is coming, and you know as well as I know because it's in your heart. Scripture tells us it's in our heart that that day is in fact coming. It's a day that people fear. It's a day of people where they want to hide their faces. But for the Christian, it's, we don't have fear of that day for our judgment has been done upon the cross. But it is a day coming where Christ will separate the wheat from the chaff. In fact, I want you to notice what Christ, how He describes that coming day, just to get a picture of this idea of eternity and eternal judgment. The Lord Jesus Christ says this in Mark chapter 9 and verse 47, And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell, where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. Literally, what he's saying and using an illustration is of Gehenna. Now, Gehenna was outside of Jerusalem, and it was a garbage dump. It was a garbage heap. And that's what Jesus is referring to when he uses the word hell. It's Gehenna, from the Valley of Hinnom. And the interesting thing is why Jesus uses this illustration, because it would have been very relevant and present to them, because they burned their trash. And so their burning trash was always there. It was constantly burning. You know, one of the weird things is that when Michael and I were in Uganda and we were going through the villages, we would find these places where there would just be a pile of trash and they were burning it. Because it's easier to do that than for them to pay to have it removed. They don't have our, our restrictions that we have here in the States where that would be illegal to do. So you, you, you find every so often just a pile of burning trash. Well, Jesus is referencing a large place where trash was dumped and it was constantly burning, where it was constantly on fire. That's the picture. So as they think of the south side of Jerusalem, what they cannot escape is this continual night and day burning in Gehenna. It's constantly burning. What went in is the point is this, it never came out. It was an eternal thing. That's why Jesus uses that language. But he uses this other language here. He says, where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. What comes with trash if it just sits out? Maggots that gnaw away at it. And what are we told about the maggots? 
they don't die. That's the picture of hell. That's the picture of eternal hell that Jesus gives us. Jesus gives us this very picture of eternal suffering under the wrath of God. That eternal judgment that one day is coming. Now why, why is that so brutal? Why is that so heavy? Go back to the first part of this. Repentance from what? Dead works. Sin brings death. Specifically, it brings about eternal death. And if our God is a just God, then He must, out of His very nature, punish sin. And so either Christ has suffered that eternal death on your part, or that eternal death is awaiting you. That's our only options. Christ has taken that eternal judgment upon the cross. And the picture of the cross is it goes complete dark, which is a picture of God's wrath that took place upon the cross. That was either suffered for you and Christ gives you his righteousness or that day is awaiting for you. It's see, you have Christ and life or you have sin and you have death. These are the elementary teachings of the Christian faith. We're told to move upon, move from these. We're to build upon that foundation, but how are we to move beyond that? Well, look at verse 3. Verse 3 says, and we will do this if God permits. Do you mean then I can't just dedicate myself, all of my own effort and merit to build upon that foundation and grow? No, you cannot do it. But I want you to notice two things about this. First is certainty. We will grow. It says this, we will do. That's a future active indicative. That means in the future, this will happen to you. There's a certainty of growth. There is a certainty. There's a guarantee. There's a promise from God that you will build upon that foundation. But then you'll notice the conditional clause, if. Notice it's right there in the text. This we will do, guaranteed, promised from God, if. If God permits it. Permits it. That's as God has allowed it to let something happen. Now, so you have two things here that we, we have to recognize and balance out. In verse 1, we're told, move on. Move from one place to another. So the onus of responsibility is then on you, on me. We need to move on. But then you get to verse 3 and it says this, and you will do this if that is God's will. You see our efforts to move on which we are commanded. We're commanded to move. But if we grow in the faith, you and I can never look in the mirror and pat ourselves on the back and say, look at how much I've grown in the faith. 
If you've grown in the faith, God receives the glory. If you're not growing in the faith, you bear the responsibility. That's the whole point of the text. We will do this if God permits. It's a guaranteed result of the Christian faith is that we will grow. You notice what Romans chapter 8 verse 14 says, For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. Are you led by the Spirit of God? If you are led by the Spirit of God, if you are in vital union with the Lord Jesus Christ and the Spirit is indwelling you, you will in fact grow. God gives the growth. We see that in 1 Corinthians chapter 3. It is God who gives the growth. And so while we are instructed to progress forward, we also have to recognize this is impossible apart from the grace of God. Think of the words of Jesus in John 15, 5. You can do nothing apart from me. What does James say? We shouldn't say we will do this and this next year. Rather, we should say if God wills. Now, as this text here moves into a warning, we have to conclude with this one point, is this. We're actually given an either-or scenario here. We grow and mature, or the danger in the rest of chapter 6 is that they fall away to never return. That means this, is the Christian life is a growing life. It's a progressing life. Now, I don't mean that that, I don't believe that that's what Hebrews is saying, is that they lose their salvation. It means that the mark of growth in the Christian life is so vital to the Christian life that apart from it, there's not a Christian life there. And this warning here is meant to awaken us. It's meant to, to, to grasp us and say, wake up. It's to remind us, this text is to remind us that those that are in Christ are secure and Christ will grow them. But these admonitions here are also to drive us to Christ, to cling to Christ, because apart from Him we can do nothing. So this text is not telling you to do more, this text is telling you to cling to Christ who has done everything. To keep on his path. Let me ask you, are you moving in your Christian walk? Are you growing? And if not, why? And if you're not growing, what, what do you need to do? You need to do the same thing that if you are growing in the faith, we all need to do, and that is call upon the Lord. To ask him to give you the desires of your heart. That is him giving you the desires. You need to call upon Him and ask Him for grace. You need to ask the Lord to work in your life. You need to plead with the Father and recognize that the Father loves to show mercy and grace to His children. So if you're not growing in your faith, and if you are growing in your faith, go to your Heavenly Father and ask Him, plead with Him to pour His grace upon you, in which we have all the riches of Christ available to us. This passage is telling you, it's telling I, it's telling these Hebrews, our forefathers from 2,000 years ago, 
Look to Christ, cling to Christ, hang to Christ. And so this morning, what we're told to do is cling to Christ. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the glorious gospel that sets us free. It is our desire to grow. It is our desire to grow in the knowledge of the word of righteousness and see that our lives are transformed by the gospel. But we cannot do this apart from your grace, apart from your working in our lives. And so we we pray your help. We pray that you would be merciful to us, that we would grow. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.